This is Truth Encounter, and as we turn to the fifth book in your Bible, Moses, the George Washington of ancient Israel, warns his people about the pitfalls that lie in the path of success. A lot of you can probably join in sometimes feeling like a taxi service from one little league competition to the next. Dave begins our study titled The Threat of Victory with some observations about the lessons he learned in a summer soccer camp his daughter Janae attended at their church. In soccer camp, one of their lessons was how to be a loser. And that's one of the things we have to learn how to do. And some of our kids learned how to be effective losers. But another one of their lessons was how to be a winner. And we can say, well, nobody really needs to know how to be a winner. We all just naturally know how to be a winner. But you know what I find as I go through my life that one of the greatest threats comes not when I lose, because when I lose, I know that I really need the Lord's help. How about you? When I go through a time where things are bad, where things aren't coming together very well, I know that I need to pray. I know that I need to depend upon the Lord. But it's when I win, it's when I've been victorious, when things have really gone well, that I can run into trouble. How about you? Well, that's what Moses is talking to the children of Israel about in Deuteronomy chapter 9 as we begin the verses. In the first section, he talks about some tremendous victories that they're about to have. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and let's look at verses 1 through 3. This is a preacher speaking. Moses says, I want you to listen to me. You are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations. The setting of Deuteronomy chapter 9 is the setting of the entire book of Deuteronomy. If you missed it, you need to picture about 2 million people up on a plateau about 2,000 feet above sea level. They're about to plunge down into a deep ravine at the bottom of the ravine across the small river that's not much bigger than the Trinity River. I know you've all probably heard that old song, Roll, Jordan, Roll. And you picture like this mighty Mississippi River and you picture this mighty, tremendous flood stage stream that knocks at everything in its way. But in reality, the Jordan River is, is just a little muddy creek many times. And these people are going to go across that Jordan River, although at flood stage it can get pretty high. And across that river, there's a city that we can speak about with walls to the heavens. And these two million people are going to have to enter that land and they don't have the battering rams to knock down the walls of these fortified cities. They really don't have the military prowess. And that's why the Lord says, you are going to go over and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you are with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Now, if I were the children of Israel about this point, I would say, Moses, you are a very optimistic coach. Um, this is not going to fly very well. How in the world are we going to be able to defeat these nations that are stronger than we are? It goes on and makes matters worse in verse 2. The people are strong and tall, the Anakites. You know about them and have heard about them. Who can stand against the Anakites? Now, you probably haven't heard of the Anakites yourself. It's not exactly on the, on the front page of the Dallas Morning News or the New York Times, but the Anakites had renown throughout the ancient Near East for being giants. Later on in the history of Israel, you're going to have this great stories of King David defeating the giant uh, Goliath. Evidently, throughout the ancient Near East, there were groups of people, 
A lot like the fact that today, for example, in Africa, there's a tribe where the average height is way up there close to seven foot. And they talk about them being giants. Well, that's the kind of reputation that the Anakites had. It would kind of be like the Midlothian Panthers going against the world champion Dallas Cowboys. That is going to be a rough game for the Panthers. And that's what you've got going on here. Moses is telling the children of Israel, you're going to go in, and I can hear probably somebody from the crowd and says, Moses, what about the Anakites? He says, that's right. There's giants in the land, and you've heard about their renown and the proverb that went out all over the ancient Near East. Who can stand before the Anakites? Now, what's the answer to that question? Who can stand before the Canaanites? Who can stand before the giants that are in the land? Look at what Moses goes on and speaks in verse 3. But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you, and the Lord your God going before you is like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. I want you to see, according to Deuteronomy chapter 9, where is the victory going to rest for the the Israelites? How are they going to defeat these giants? How are they going to defeat the Canaanites? Whose power is it going to be? It's going to be the Lord's power. And how is the Lord described? He's described like a consuming fire. Remember that as the Lord led the children of Israel through the wilderness, that he went before them as a pillar of fire. What the Lord is promising is that as the children of Israel invade the enemy territory, as they move in against the city of Jericho, as they move in against the Canaanites, it's going to be the pillar of fire that goes before them. And it says that that pillar of fire is going to be like a consuming fire that will destroy their enemies. But I also want you to see the combination. It says, and you will subdue them. And what we have is this biblical balance, which is from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. There's always a balance between the Lord winning the victory, but he uses us to do it. In the Old Testament, the enemy was a literal enemy for the children of Israel. The children of Israel were facing the enemy of a physical warfare. It was the Canaanites. These Canaanites for 400 years had rebelled against the Lord. We're going to find out in the next paragraph that the Lord is going to send his judgment against them because of their wickedness, because of their sinfulness, because of their idolatry and immorality. The enemy in the Old Testament was a physical enemy. It was the Canaanites. As we sit here this morning, we need to ask the question, what's our enemy? As New Testament people of God, the Lord's not asking us like the Islamic jihad, the Islamic holy war, which becomes a horrible thing that ends up butchering innocent people. A lot of what's going on is a confusion where false uses of the idea of holy war begin to pit neighbor against neighbor and the swords flash and the the guns blast and people die. The Islamic sect in the Philippines, uh, guerrillas have come in from all over the Islamic world. And they're, they're flaming the anger of the people and they're telling the Islamic people of the southern Philippines to declare jihad, holy war, against their neighbors. And the idea is you either convert to Islam, you get what they call the love letter. And in the letter they say you either convert to Islam or else. 
And the or else means that we're going to begin by putting tremendous business pressure upon you, but it will end with us taking your life. There was a missionary that was on the radio every single day that was, that was a Christian radio broadcast that went out across the Islamic world. This missionary was very, very careful to be very sensitive in what he said on that radio broadcast. And he was very careful to, to not raise up the ire of the Islamic people. One morning as he was broadcasting, a couple came in because they gave opportunity for there to be a news broadcast because there's not good telephone communications, they opened the doorway for people to come on the air and they could give messages to their loved ones all over that area where they couldn't reach them by phone. A couple came in to do that. They distracted the ones that were, that were doing the radio broadcast that morning. Two men drove up in a car, jumped out, came into the radio studio and blew into eternity both the engineer and this young missionary that was broadcasting. Holy war that's gone astray. It's happening all over the world and that persecution is being raised. Our enemy today, it's very, very important, is not flesh and blood. As we begin to think about the word culture wars, in the, there's been a tremendous upraising of the idea of culture wars. Our society is becoming very divided between the right and between the left. In fact, some of the intellectuals of our country are saying that our country hasn't been more divided than the period before the Civil War. The culture wars are heating up. How are we to react to the culture wars? It's really easy to get angry and to say that what we need to do is to declare holy war against their enemies. It's easy to use all the jargon like they do in South Africa. In the South African political milieu, the setting of South Africa, they use these kinds of Old Testament scriptures to verify the right of one people to the Southern Africa and the right of that people to eliminate anyone that would oppose them. In other words, I want you to realize that the passages that we're studying together today are being used throughout the modern world to declare physical war against a physical enemy. And it's so important for us to rightly understand the word of truth. What did the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Very important to realize that. Your enemy is not the unbeliever who persecutes you or teases you at school or, or makes it hard on you at work. It says your enemy is not the unbeliever. The enemy is not that person that opposes your moral values. That the real enemy behind that opposition against the things of God is an unseen enemy. We wrestle a spiritual warfare against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this dark world. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, remember when you were an unbeliever. And he talks about the days when you were an unbeliever, when you were controlled by the present world atmosphere. When you were controlled by the one that now rules and dominates over the present world system. The prince of the power of the present atmosphere by which we live in. And Paul says that that enemy is the adversary, Satan. It's very important for us to realize that unlike the Canaanites, 
Our enemy is not a physical enemy. And we're not going to defeat him just by getting organized politically. In fact, we can get organized politically and that enemy can invade our political organization and he can turn us into evil. He can turn us into pride. He can turn us into immorality. He can turn us into lying and slander. We can become the enemy itself if we don't realize that it's much more insidious than just the enemy that's out there. Because the Apostle Paul says that we wrestle not just against principalities and powers of this dark world, Satan, but we also wrestle with an enemy that's within. The enemy that's within is the cravings of our sinful desires. Every one of us, according to the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 3, are dominated by illicit desires. There's passions within us that make us want to rebel against the Lord. And Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 9 exposes one of the most subtle, one of the most subtle passions that's inside of us. You see, we think the real enemy might be sexual immorality. We think the real enemy might be uh, lying or a tendency to steal or the tendency to have an abortion or something like that. But I'm going to talk with Moses preaching to us from Deuteronomy chapter 9 about probably the most insidious enemy that I face, probably the most insidious enemy that you face. And that's the idea that somehow... God is blessing me because I'm better than those guys out there. I'm going to say that again. You know what your most, in, most incredibly subtle enemy that you're going to face? It's the self-righteous pride that thinks that you're good and that other person is bad. And God blesses you and God's going to get them because you're better than they are. Let's look what he says. Go on in the next section. It says in verse 4, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, so the Lord's going to give these Old Testament saints, these Old, Test- this Old Testament people, a great victory over their enemies. The Lord promises us in the New Testament that we're soon going to crush Satan under our feet. So the sovereign Lord God of heaven and earth says, we don't need to be discouraged. We're ultimately going to win this war against our passions. We're ultimately going to win this war against enemy. We're on positive, victorious ground. He says, just like the children of Israel, you're going to drive them out before you. The Lord has brought me. Now notice what they're going to say when the enemy is driven out. The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land. Why? Because of my righteousness. You see what the people are saying? The people enter the promised land. The walls of Jericho fall down. They go up to Hatzor and this mighty enemy of the ancient world. You can read in some of the annals about the power of Hatzor. The children of Israel are able to defeat this gigantic city. There's a southern coalition of Canaanites. They all get together. And General Joshua is able to win a gigantic victory. And the children of Israel take over cities and lands and homes and prosperity fields that are, that are all through the Judean mountains. There's marvelous vineyards. The children of Israel are dwelling in their land. And they're living in these beautiful homes. And they're sitting in their living one day watching their video. No, they didn't do that. But they're sitting there in their lazy boy watching their video and the father of the home crosses his arm and says, what a good boy am I. 
Look at all this stuff that I have. Is this not the home that I built? Is this not the city that we built? Is this not the land that God has given to us? And I say to him, sir, why did God give you this land? He says, because the Canaanites were bad and we were good. That's the insidious, deceitful lie that Satan's trying to impose upon the people of God and that Moses very wisely, because skillful leaders expose the truth of what, the, what their people are going to face. And Moses is going right for the jugular and for the heartbeat of the people, and he's saying, watch out for the belief that God rewards the good and punishes the bad. And therefore, if you're rewarded and if you're blessed, then you must be good. And if somebody is, is rejected, then they must be bad. Now notice how, the, how Moses clarifies what was really going on. No, he says in verse 4, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness. It's not because you're innocent or because of your integrity, because of your straightness, because of your ability to keep the will of the Lord, that you're going in to possess the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess it because you are a stiff-necked people. Now in that opening paragraph, Moses nails his sermon. So I can do that as well. This is the point of what Moses is trying to get across. He says to his Old Testament saints, and by the inspired word of the Lord Jesus, he speaks to us today. He says, number one, God is going to drive out the Canaanites, and you are right, the Canaanites are wicked. And one of the ideas, it's a normative principle of the God's word, righteousness will not exalt a nation. And God will bring judgment. In fact, if God judged the Canaanites and he doesn't judge what's going on throughout not only the United States, but throughout the Western world, then he is going to have to apologize to the Canaanites. What were some of the things the Canaanites did? One of the things they did was take their, especially their firstborn infants, and they heated the furnace of Moloch, this molten idol that was like a blast furnace, and they would take their firstborn sons and they would put it in the arms of Moloch and watch that little baby just be exterminated. And God struck them down because God said, the children are mine. The Old Testament is very clear that little ones are knit together in the womb of a mother according to the guiding hands of God. We live in a society that says that we are just progressive animals and we can just live the way we feel like and if a, if a little, little infant, which we call just a, a fetus, is in the womb of a mother, if she doesn't want it, if society doesn't want it, you just cut it in little pieces and suck it out, and that's it. The destruction of children, millions of them. The scripture says God hates the destruction of children. We live in a society that's debating, debating about nuclear family. I mean, 
just mentioned, the nuclear family is an ideal. It's the heartbeat of the way it should be. It's right. And our society goes up in arms and says, how narrow-minded can you be? You mean a man and a man can't live together and declare themselves to be a loving, very devoted couple and a woman and a woman can't live together? You mean to tell me that we can't appoint them to the highest offices of our land? What did the Canaanites do? As you read the book of Leviticus, there are major chapters in the book of Leviticus, like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 21, that speak about the Canaanite practices of sexuality. And the Lord goes right through those practices, including homosexuality and bestiality and illicit sexual relationships with people that don't really belong to you. And God highlights his heartbeat is for monogamous marriage. And all these illicit ways of using sexuality are going to destroy the physical health of people, the emotional health, and the spiritual vitality. And it was part of the Canaanites. And we live in a society right now where a monogamous marriage, like if you've been devoted to one woman and one man for a lifetime, if you still cherish a wedding ceremony, and I want to stress to you, the atmosphere is so strong. There was a day, for example, if a young person got married in a church family, the whole town would come out. The whole area would come out. No longer. You know why? Because we're cynical about marriage. The conversation goes, oh, they were sleeping together anyway. What does that say to some of our young people that are really seeking to live pure about our, our union with them and our support of them? You see, all the connections are breaking down people. And the atmosphere that we're living in is calling us just to live for ourselves and don't be devoted to one another. And the older generations being told, don't worry about those young people. You already raised the young people. You've already done your thing. You've already taught the Sunday school classes. You've already worked in the nursery. Now's your time just to do your thing. And the younger people are being told after they get, that they get in college, there's, a, there's an in-between time period. You don't need to be involved with God's people anymore. This is your time to kind of be in college and do your own thing and just get out there. And communion with God's people gets left behind. Little children are left because younger, middle-aged parents are saying, I need to get out there and work, 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 work. So in the summer months across this town, children are just left alone without any guidance, just there with the marvelous teaching of TV. Our culture is Canaanite. Our culture is Canaanite. And what the Lord is saying is he will bring judgment. The evangelical church is saying, don't talk about judgment on a Sunday morning. What I'm teaching in Deuteronomy, evangelicalism are teaching young pastors. What I'm doing is out of it. It's out of it. You don't talk to people about sin. You don't talk to people about wickedness. And who would ever teach from the Old Testament? I mean, we hardly can get into the New Testament. How can we ever get into Deuteronomy? I'm very serious about that. Across evangelicalism, there's, there's a, a slow moving away from the teaching of God's holy word. And I want to share with you what happens to me because I've been in the book of Deuteronomy this week. The Lord starts to put his finger on my life. He starts to say, Dave, you are prideful here. 
in a very subtle way. And this idea that you think that, that I reward you because you're good and because you've been a pastor and because some of the things that you've done, it creeps into your life. And as I read Deuteronomy chapter 9, the Holy Spirit's able to rip away that facade. And because he loves me, he tells me the truth. And across this land, evangelicalism is moving away from that kind of exposure to the convicting work that God's word can do in all of our lives. Maybe you don't even know what an evangelical believer is, but I do know that all of you can accept that the Bible has influenced the American culture more than any other piece of literature. Whatever our religious persuasion, Dave has challenged us to open up the Bible on a regular basis and to read it carefully. We will continue our study of Deuteronomy chapter 9 next week, but Moses' warning about the danger of forgetting God in periods of material blessing is something all of us need to weigh carefully. Just think of the high-profile ballplayers who ruined their careers at the peak of success because they ignored the dangers of pride, lust, and drug abuse.